Okay, I'm going to welcome some special guests this morning uh, who are here to speak to us um, about a, an idea that is f taking shape around us and which could begin to take shape within us. Uh, I'm delighted to welcome Neil Jamieson, who I think is just about no longer uh, chief exec, yep, chief exec of Citizens UK. Um, I'm going to let you uh, introduce yourself and the others a little bit more. So I'm going to hand over to Neil and let them do it rather than me telling you what they're going to do. Uh, so if you, you want to come up, I've got some microphones for you as well. And we're really pleased to have you here. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, nice to be here again. Uh, you're a member of London Citizens. I have just stood down from uh, the executive director's post after 30 years. It's great you're a member. But so is my own meeting. I'm a Quaker. We go to, uh, my wife and I go to St. Martin's Lane Quakers and uh, we are representing them as well too. Uh, I'm here not particularly because of London Citizens, except this is an initiative that Citizens UK is very keen on, which is to encourage you very, very specifically, not just to listen to this, but some of you in the congregation to join us. Uh, us being a team of people that are coming together to sponsor a Syrian refugee family. This is a new idea. Uh, it has, for the last two years, the government has been encouraging groups like ourselves. You've got to be a registered charity to sponsor to consider hands-on experience of receiving a family into our neighborhood. This would therefore be done by a team of people, so we're looking for people to join our team, ideally from here, from Westminster Quakers and from the London School of Economics, and we represent them all, and each of us is gonna give a little talk about who we are. Uh, I hope I bring a lot of experience of how to do this. Many citizens groups are now sponsoring this. I say many, not enough, uh, about six citizens members are now sponsoring families who have arrived quite a lot in Wales, which is interesting. In Fishguard, there is a sponsoring group who have now received their Syrian family. And the deal from the Home Office is you have to raise 10,000 pounds, a sponsor has to raise 10,000 pounds. Well, we Quakers have already done that, so we're blessed by that, so don't worry about the money. Uh, you have to have a team of people, which we are growing, but we want you to join us. In a way, the broader the partnership, the more likely it is for us to get through with the accreditation process, which the Home Office have to do. You have to find a house which is near to the sponsors, so somewhere around here, that's still been a way searching for, uh, and most importantly, the team. Once you've done that and been accredited by the Home Office, the family arrive at Heathrow, and they're there our responsibility. So this is a total hands-on experience, unlike all the other opportunities to help refugees, where the family are our responsibility for two years, ideally indefinitely. So we're in this for the long haul, as you have to be in civil society, because people don't finish after two years. Uh, it's a great responsibility. It's also fantastic for us to take back the responsibility from the state, not totally take it back, so that frankly we can do some of the stuff that the state doesn't do as well as we can do, which is called integration. The evidence from Canada, where they have done this for 40 years, is that it's a much quicker way of integrating Syrian families or families who are refugees into the community because they are us. We know where the schools are, we know where the doctors are, we know the bus routes and so on. They need all that sort of help. We don't speak Arabic, so we have to speak Arabic. We don't have to, there may be people here learning Arabic, uh, and they're pretty well all Muslims who are coming here, so we do need a mosque to be partly to this opportunity. However, it is a great opportunity. I will just pass on to my colleagues who uh, are also going to share who they are. Hello, I'm Jennifer. I'm also from uh, the Quaker meeting at Westminster. 
um, and, and one of the team that hopes to take this forward. Um, and I have some experience in, in teaching English to refugees and, and have done some voluntary work with asylum seekers. And, and refugees have a certain sense of the kind of uh, problems that people have come with um, and from and how it feels. But essentially, what I can offer is just human qualities of uh, compassion and listening and um, talking. I've done a lot of work with, with women and... Um, so I hope that that will be useful, and I'm sure that there are many here who will have similar qualities. Um, one doesn't have to have a huge amount of time, but we, the more of us that there are, we can share the tasks around. And I want to say I pass this building a couple of times a week to go to the swimming pool, and I've noticed your poster outside saying we stand in solidarity with our Muslim and, and Jewish neighbours, and I've always found that very moving. Thank you. Thank you very much, and it's wonderful to be here this morning. My name's Nancy Fee, and I'm part of our Quaker meeting in Westminster. Thank you. So you can probably hear my accent. I'm Canadian. And so I've seen the impact that this program has when I visit home, and I see community groups, churches, book clubs, anybody, coming together to sponsor refugee families. And it changes the whole dialogue. It changes us, it changes them because we help make people part of the community and reach out in a very human way. My own background is I worked for the United Nations for decades, <laughs> I've just recently retired, and that included a couple of years working for UNHCR, the High Commission for Refugees, setting up health programs in refugee camps in Uganda. So it was a while ago now, I've worked in many other countries since, but I'm back here and I very much look forward to meeting people, learning about you, and join, having you join our team. Thank you very much. Hi there, uh, my name's Scott. I'm uh, a second year sociology student from uh, the London School of Economics. And um, well, what skills I, I sort of bring to the team, I guess, is that I've actually recently come back from a trip to uh, Israel and Palestine myself. Uh, where I was working with the, the faith department at the LSE to try and build bridges and, and understand the conflict there. Um, I've also worked with children in the past, and that's my alarm going off, whoopsie. <laughs> um, but yes, I've, I've worked with children in the past, and so hopefully we can, what we can gain from this and what I can gain from this is, is helping people that are, are suffering and need our help. Thank you. So that, I think, is almost our time up, but I think we have time for two or three questions, which we'd really welcome uh, if this isn't clear to you. Specifically, there are some literature here which we can leave, and at least two of us can stay behind for the coffee afterwards if you want to approach us. But it would be quite good to have some feedback from you, whether this sounds interesting. Our hope is that you will consent to be a partner and that specifically two or three of you will join the team. The team is the team the Home Office check out. Uh, who are responsible for this. The registered charity will be the West London West Area Quakers, so that's sorted, but the team is not sorted. So uh, the very specific request is partnership with us and also some names for people to hands-on have this wonderful privilege to receive a Syrian family, get to know them, look after them for the next two years, if not indefinitely. Any questions? 
Good question. It is complete opposite of that. We bless the fact that the government is receiving, it's received 12,500 Syrians towards their 20,000 total that the Prime Minister said we would do. But it's called the VPRS scheme. Quite a lot of citizens are trying to volunteer for that, but they have the same experience as you, that we go when we're called, effectively. The state is responsible, the local authority is held responsible. This is the other way around. The local authority does need to consent to have a sponsor in their area, but after that, that's it. So it's totally up to us. So you would be, were you part of the team, actively involved in receiving the family, visiting regularly, everything, basically, that's responsible. Okay, so we would need a couple of months to go through all the administrative processes. So to come together, get the team working, register, fill out the application forms, all this type of thing. If it goes well, we could expect that around February, March, we would be receiving a family and they would be coming from a refugee camp and considered vulnerable. Um, so uh, family, a few kids, parents, you know, and one of our, our jobs, our jobs would be to receive them, to help them get settled, register with the doctor, get the kids in school, all the very practical things, register for learning English and also to look at the possibility of work, okay? And to be together with them for the next couple of years. I think, I think you're right. I think it is hard to keep a consistent uh, approach. But the thing is, that since this is about getting to know people, this is about friends, this is about, um, it's, you know, you can get quite close to the people that you're working with. And since there will be a largish group of us, um, you know, if someone else can't take them to the doctor that week, someone else can. Um, and I, th I think when you really get to know people, and it isn't just uh, a charitable thing out there, um, it's not like burnout because you, I mean, it's like people of your, of your congregation or whatever, when someone is sick, I mean, you know, you, you go and see them. Um, I, I, think, I think we can manage it, I mean, uh, but I'm not, on, I'm not underrating um, the responsibility. Uh, but I think there'll be enough of us. Just one more thing, really, the experience from the people who've already started sponsoring say that the benefit for the sponsor is almost as great as it is for the family. It brings new people into the institution, it's doing some, it's, like a, it's almost like a project, but it's more, much more than that because it's human beings we're talking about. So the benefit from being part of this I think would be substantial for Bloomsbury, definitely for the Quaker meetings and hopefully for the students at the LSE. Thank you. So just before we move on with our Bible reading, perhaps a word, thank you so much for coming and for being part of our congregation and talking to us about this this morning. The reason I really wanted us to hear about this is we've been part of Citizens UK as a church for a few years now, probably about three or four years. And we've done various things with them, which have been great. I remember going to the Copper Box and we were putting the mayoral candidates on the spot and getting commitments from them. Um, we've, been, we've been involved in uh, things around affordable housing. The thing I really like about this kind of project is, in my head, I have no idea what to do about the refugee crisis. Just, you know, I, I am horrified by it, I'm deeply upset by it, but what on earth can we do at a practical level? And this is an opportunity to transform the life of a family of refugees here on our doorstep with our community. And the thing I really like about it is it's not just us, it's a group of people, it's working at an interfaith level, it's working with a secular institution in terms of a university, 
This is living out the kind of partnerships that I think Bloomsbury is committed to. So that's why I wanted us to hear this this morning. There's clearly a lot more conversations to have, and we will, we will come back to this together as a church. But thank you so much for coming and introducing this to us this morning. I really appreciate you being here. I'm going to ask Ben if he would come now and bring us our Old Testament reading. Uh, the first reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 to 16. And you can find it on page 3 of the Old Testament section um, in the Pew Bibles. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, Sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which, is in, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The second reading today is from Hebrews chapter 10. Um, there'll be two parts. First verses 1 to 6, and then verses 10 to 14. And you can find it on page 239 in the New Testament section of the Pew Bibles. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect to those who approach. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered, since the worshippers, cleansed once for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, 
When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Now, going to verse 10. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offerings of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since then, he has been waiting until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So this week, we're continuing our uh, autumn preaching series, looking at uh, what I have uh, entitled the anti-lectionary. So this was where I asked you for suggestions of passages that you haven't heard preached on in church before, that you thought you might not have heard preached on, and we put together a list of them. It's the kind of stuff that you wouldn't normally expect to hear preached on in church, and one of them was Cain and Abel and murder. So we thought, let's talk about uh, that this morning. What about murder? Uh, On the Saturday night of the August bank holiday weekend, a couple of weeks ago, a young man was stabbed to death in southeast London, not too far from where I live. His death came just days after the Metropolitan Police had announced their 100th homicide investigation in London this year. The capital's murder rate is on course for a 28% rise in 2018 after a wave of street killings mostly related to gang knife crime but fueled, interestingly, by a rising middle-class demand for cocaine. It's serious stuff. It's in our city. It's on our doorstep. But there's also that, does it affect me? I'm not involved in gang stuff. I'm not annoying the people with the knives. It's very, I live in a reasonably safe, do I need to worry about this? I'd never kill anybody, would I? I'm sure none of you would, would you? Well, today we come to consider the story of Cain and Abel. And I want to suggest, as my thesis for us this morning, that Cain, the first murderer of the biblical tradition, is still alive and living amongst us. It seems to me that this archetypical marked man of human history has refused to die. As the Bible says, he is marked, he will not die. And I think that as a consequence, in our city and throughout our world, lives continue to be taken at the hand of another. The drive to shed blood, righteously or unrighteously, which this story helps us explore, is as strong as it has ever been. And so my question for us this morning is, what might it take for Cain to be laid to rest? What is necessary to overcome the seemingly universal human tendency towards violence as the solution to our problems. 
And my hope is that as we spend some time with this story and the various ways in which it's been interpreted, we may begin to uncover some of the darkness in our own world which drives human siblings to bloodshed. We need to get our heads around this. You know, we're about to, we're about to go out to Israel-Palestine. People are dying. Brothers are killing brothers. Sisters are killing sisters around the world. But first, I'm going to start with what seems to me to be the biggest theological problem with the text. What on earth kind of a God have we got here who provokes Cain by rejecting his offering whilst simultaneously receiving the offering that was offered by his brother Abel. This surely seems to be a capricious, unpredictable God who offers no explanation or rationale for either his giving or his withholding of acceptance. Why does God say to Cain, unacceptable and to Abel acceptable and God and that's kind of what motivates Cain to rise up and kill his brother now I know there are all sorts of theories in the background to this one of the interesting ones which I'm just going to say out there and then we'll probably park it because it's not massively relevant is you've got um, echoes of the ancient tension between uh, the hunter-gatherer and the agrarian lifestyle. I mean, we're talking about the rise of domesticated agriculture in the ancient Near East, in the Fertile Crescent. Uh, there were tensions between people who kept flocks and moved around and people who tilled the ground. And there's something of that probably echoing down the millennia into this story. But I'm not sure that gets God off the hook in it. This seems very much like the God of the book of Job, who makes a bet with Satan as to whether Job's faith will withstand testing. So let's just randomly make Job's life awful and see if he curses God. Let's just randomly reject Cain's offering and then give him a warning about not rising to the bait that we've dangled in front of him and then see what he does. And what he does is he rises to it and he kills his brother. This is not a very nice God here. So I want to suggest something that I've said before, which is that I think biblical narratives can best be understood as a series of thought experiments about the nature of God. If we were to take every description of God in the Bible as an accurate and infallible revelation of the nature of the divine, we would get into all sorts of trouble because we would have to reconcile a whole variety of competing and contradictory pictures. A more helpful approach, it seems to me, is to regard these various portrayals of God that we find in Scripture as a series of questions in narrative form about the nature of God. Is he a God of love or is he a God of war? A God of forgiveness or a God of vengeance? And so on, you know, exploring these things. What would it look like in our world if God was like this? Play that out in story form. What would it look like if God looked like that? Let's play that one out. And here in chapter 4 of Genesis, our 16 verses that we had read to us a few minutes ago, I think we encounter a story which is trying to grapple with where God fits into the very real human fear of rejection. 
a fear which underlies and distorts so many of our relationships with one another. Think about it for a moment. None of us like being rejected. If I come up to you and I say, hello, it's nice to see you, and you turn your face away from me and ignore me, that's not nice. If I do that to you, it's not nice. We fear being rejected. And there's a theory put forward by the Jewish philosopher Moshe Halbertal that the sacrificial systems of cultic religions, such as ancient Judaism, originated with the desire to build relationships through the giving and receiving of gifts. We know that there are many cultures around the world, even today, that have deeply embedded gift-giving traditions, where the glue that holds society together is founded in the giving of gifts, with no immediate expectation of reward. You give somebody a gift, they receive it. They don't have to pay you back for it. But what it does is it establishes relationship. I give you the gift, you accept it, we have a relationship. You don't accept it, I know we have a problem. And a gift economy founded on such traditions will all inevitably function quite differently to, for example, a barter economy or a market economy such as our own. The important thing in a gift economy is that your gift is received. If it is, you have a good relationship with the person to whom you've given it. And if it isn't, the relationship is broken in some way and conflict has entered the system. And Halbertal suggests that when it comes to desiring a relationship with God, the gift-giving mechanism is always inherently unequal. Because there really is nothing that a human can give to God that can adequately match the gifts that the God has already given to humans. So as a consequence, he suggests that the idea of offering a sacrifice emerged within sort of ancient cultic religions as a way of returning back to the God a portion of what has already been received in the hope that receiving the sacrifice will mark a good relationship between God and the giver, re-establishing it you know, for another year. The harvest has gone well, God has given a good harvest, so we give some of it back to God, and then God says, yes, I received that, and the relationship's good, and everything's okay again. And Halbertal suggests that this led to uh, the development of complicated cultic rituals around the processes of offering sacrifices. Because the dark side of a sacrificial system would be the fear that if for some reason God didn't accept the sacrifice, maybe it was the wrong kind of sacrifice or been offered in the wrong way or something, a person might become estranged from God, and that was a big worry. So the emergence of priests and laws and ceremonies were there to ensure that a sacrifice, when offered, would be received properly by God. Interestingly, it also allowed for the development of a theology of atonement, where the gift of the sacrifice in some way expressed not only thankfulness for the gifts already received and a desire for relationship with God, but also repentance for those sins which had broken the relationship between humans and God. And then within the Jewish system, which is just one of the, the many you know, cultic sacrificial religions of the ancient world, within the Jewish system, this developed over the centuries into a full-blown system and theology of sacrificial atonement, where the sins of the people 
were symbolically put onto a sacrificial lamb which was then put out in the wilderness to die in the hope that the, the sacrifice of an innocent animal would lead to a re-establishment of the divine-human relationship for another year until it was time to do it all again next year. The relevance of all of this for our consideration of Cain and Abel is that whilst this story of Cain and Abel is set in prehistory, we need to remember that it took shape in and was written down by a society with a highly developed sacrificial system. It'd be a bit like me now writing a contemporary history of, I don't know, Churchill. You wouldn't think it was written in the 40s. You'd know it was written to address things that mattered to us now, taking some of the wisdom of Churchill, maybe, and appropriating it for a later generation. So the story of Cain and Abel, it's set in prehistory, but it's told and recorded much later. It's told by people who are the inheritors and, and practitioners of a highly developed sacrificial system of, of cultic atonement. So, Cain and Abel is the story then which enables the Jews of later centuries to explore their deep fear that without all their careful cultic rituals to ensure successful sacrifices, maybe, just maybe, it was possible for God to reject their offering. Maybe if he did, the consequences of that broken relationship would be disastrous. So some people suggest that this story originates within that strand of uh, Old Testament stories that were told by the priests. You can see why a priest would want you to hear this story. It's like, you know, if you don't do it properly through us, God might reject the offering, and that's how all this nightmare about killing started. There was clearly a fear in ancient Judaism that God might not accept the offerings of his people, however carefully they'd been offered. The prophet Amos plays on this fear rather unashamedly in his call for repentance and social justice. Just listen to this. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you just as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He's not entirely sure, it just, it's just a possibility. I hate, I despise your festivals, says the Lord a few verses later. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, Amos says, God says. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not look upon them. This is the God who rejects Cain's offering, isn't it? I will not look upon them and the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. Get rid of that piano. Get rid of those guitars. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. Stop the organ pipes. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. For Amos, the prophet of later Judaism, the choice before God's people was essentially the same as the choice which had faced Cain. Their offerings had been deemed unacceptable. And they now had to choose how they were going to respond to the fact that the word of the Lord had come to them and said, I do not receive your offering. God said it to Cain, and Cain killed Abel. God says it to the people of Amos' time. What are they going to do? Cain, as we know from the story, embraced murder, violence, and anger. Amos knows that that potential still resides in the heart of all Cain's descendants. But Amos hopes 
that the people of God in his time will rewrite the script and choose to embrace justice and righteousness. And that through their repentance and the offering of gifts of goodness and mercy, they'll discover a new quality of relationship with God that the mere sacrificing of animals and grain has not produced. And so we're back to Cain and Abel. And how this story might perhaps begin to challenge us in the ways that we seek renewed relationship with God. It would be very easy for us to say that we would never make in our lives the mistake that Cain made. That we would never go so far as to commit murder because we were upset that God didn't like the offering we brought before him. But if we find ourselves tempted by such complacency, we need to hear again the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, but whoever, sorry, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. If you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go and first be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Because otherwise, if you offer your gift from a bad heart, you are putting yourself in conflict not just with God but with your brother or sister and so we become Cain and Abel in our time, so easily. We become Cain and Abel in our church, just as easily as the people of God in Amos's time could do it. John Steinbeck said of this story from Genesis chapter 4 that these 16 verses are a history of mankind in any age or culture or race. This story of Cain and Abel ancient words, long preserved, are a story about the choices daily before each of us as to what decisions we are prepared to make in our longing to be justified. Who or what are we prepared to sacrifice in order to feel right with God? The desire in each of us to be right and to be on the side of right is very strong. We all long to be righteous in the sight of ourselves and each other and God, it's natural. But the price we are prepared to pay for being right can be disturbingly high. It is so easy for us to write violence, oppression and bloodshed into our desire to ensure our own sense of righteousness. And we do it by creating our own cultic systems of ritual scapegoating, which make us righteous by demonizing the other. We become Cain, the other becomes Abel. And if you doubt me, just take a look at what our society is doing with regards to refugees and immigration more broadly. I am deeply troubled that the God we worship as a nation is not the God of universal love that we see revealed in Jesus Christ. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, our time as a Christian country, if ever such a thing even existed, is now long gone. And in its place, our national obsession 
has become a god of our own construction, who takes shape in ideologies of isolationism, the fear of the foreigner, and the protection of national interest above all else. We have deified nationalism. We have constructed our own highly efficient cultic system to ensure that our behavior within that system is deemed righteous and acceptable in its sight. And if you spend any time with the asylum and immigration system, as some of us in the church have done recently, you quickly realize what an efficient scapegoating mechanism it is and what dehumanizing effects it has on those who fall into its workings. And if you spend any time with the benefits system, you quickly realize the cost it exacts on those who have to negotiate the sanctions and punishments of things like universal credit. And I could go on with issues of housing and homelessness, low pay and extortionate credit rates, reduced access to healthcare, the privatization of essential services, all contributing to a national identity which demands our worship and rewards our obedience, whilst scapegoating the vulnerable. And we still bring our offerings of our efforts, our money, our taxes, and we leave them on the altar of the free market economy, trusting that the gods of neoliberalism will receive them with gratitude and that we can leave justified. I do my peace, I pay my taxes. What more can I do? Well, I'm afraid I think it's time to call time on this false god. Because any system that requires the sacrifice of a vulnerable minority to preserve the righteousness of the majority is contrary to the gospel of Christ. And so back to Cain and Abel again. After Cain killed Abel, the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And instead of saying, yes, you blooming well are, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And here we come to the crux of the matter. We are Cain. I am Cain. You are Cain. Because we are those who participate in the contemporary systems of cultic sacrifice that leads to the scapegoating and death of our sisters and brothers. And their innocent blood cries out to God from the ground. We are all guilty here. We have not been our sister or brother's keeper. We have looked first to our own interests and allowed ourselves to become blinded to the interests of others. And our fractured relationship with the God of love will not be fixed by offerings of worship or money or effort. Rather, our calling as the people of God, as the book of Hebrews tells us, is to trust the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, to know that we are justified not because of anything we can do, but because of what God has done for us already. But then we are to bring our offering of thanksgiving to the altar as a gift for God given out of the abundance of forgiveness that we have already received. And here's the thing, if we're going to bring an offering that God will look on with favor and not turn his face away from, then we need to hear the voice of Amos again, reminding us that the offering that is pleasing to God is the offering of hearts and lives committed to justice. That's why... I'm so keen on us getting involved in Refugee Welcome 
and all of the other stuff that goes with Citizens UK and our participation in that. Our righteousness, such as it will ever be, will only be found when righteousness flows out to others as a never-failing stream of life-giving water. Ever-loving and ever-living God, we come now to pray in love for the life of your world. Lord of love, we pray for all those whose lives are not lived in love. We pray for those in relationships where love has diminished. We pray for those who have been betrayed by those they love and for those who have turned away from a love once cherished. We pray for those who love objects more than people and for those who can only love people when they see them as objects. We pray for those whose actions towards others are not loving and for ourselves when we have not loved others as you have loved us. We thank you that your love is eternal and unending and that you are drawing the world to you in love. Lord of justice, we pray for those whose lives lack the experience of justice. We pray for those who are wrongfully imprisoned and for those who have been victims of injustice within the legal system. We pray for those who have pursued paths of vengeance and not justice, seeking relief for their suffering through the suffering of another. We pray for those who work to ensure justice is done, those who blamelessly uphold the law for the good of all. We pray for those who mediate between people and who see restoration as the goal of justice. We thank you that your justice is righteous and loving and that you desire mercy for others as you have mercy on us. Lord of integrity, we pray for those whose lives are lacking in integrity, for those who do not speak truth either to themselves or to others, and for those who live as victims of the deceit of others. We pray for those who seek to speak truth, but who face opposition and hostility for their honesty. May they have the courage to speak truth to power. May we have wisdom to discern truth when it is revealed. We thank you that your truth transcends our capacity for deception and that you challenge us to live lives of integrity and integration. So in love and longing for justice and committed to integrity, we offer these our prayers for our world. We commit to your justice all those who live with a tangible experience of injustice, and we think especially of those caught in the crisis of Syria. May those who live with injustice be saved from the path of seeking violent retribution against others.
we commit to your truth all those whose lives are lived in deceit. And we think especially of those who have been lied to and brought to our country on the promise of a better life, only to find that they are used and abused by those more powerful than they. God of love, God of justice, God of truth, hear our prayers for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>